Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast, Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring a song, while the other host has no idea what song's the focus until we hit play. Here we are. We made it to episode seven. We did. It's a huge milestone in every podcaster's career. Yeah, we're now flashing the pan. This is for real. Well, I can say, I guess most don't get to this point. Here we are. Let's jump in. I've been told that we've got an exciting episode here, that you have done a ton of research while you have been laid up in bed with food poisoning. So nature wanted you to, to settle in and get ready for this episode. Yes, Mother Nature wanted us to talk about this. Yeah, it's got a great backstory. There's a lot to talk about. All right, here's a song we're going to talk about on episode seven of You Wanted to Hit. Let's go. Mm. Mm. Yes. I mean, this one. This one had to be talked about. Another uh, another Weird Al inspiration as well. <laughs> we will talk about that. I'm excited about this song because this song on the surface feels like it could be a very service level song. So you told me there's a good story behind it, and I'm ready for for the adventure. Man, I had no idea. Uh, there's there's a lot about the song, and there's a lot about the artist who sings the song. Do you know who sings the song? I actually don't know. Would I know it? Should I know it? You tell me after we talk about this, if you should know who she is. <laughs> okay. Uh, this song is by American singer, actress, choreographer, dancer, and filmmaker, Tony Basil. Whoa. I, I do not know the name, but she sounds like a like a Jane of all trades. Is that the uh, correct colloquialism? Yeah, I believe so. I know it seems like a long list of things to dabble in that you like throw in your Twitter bio, <laughs> but for Tony, it's true. Okay. And you'll see that she has excelled at all of these things, which is pretty incredible. She was born Antonia Cristina Basilona. Okay. Which is a real cool name. That's a very cool name, but a mouthful nonetheless. She's often on one hit wonder lists, but what people don't realize is that when she released this song, she was on the third decade of her impressive career. Wow. So she'd been in the game for a while. She was born in, here we go again, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. No shit. Yeah. Yo, so much good music coming out of Pennsylvania. Who knew? Right? Bloodhound Gang, Tony Basil. <laughs> <laughs> Tony's mom was a vaudevillian acrobat and comedian. Okay. And her dad was an orchestra conductor who led orchestras at a bunch of famous theaters. And that took their family to Vegas in the late 50s. Hmm. There in Vegas, Tony joined, you guessed it, her high school cheerleading squad. Sure, yeah. We can already see where that influence on the song came from. After high school, Tony pursued dancing as a career. And her first big gig was an assistant choreographer on an ABC show called Shindig. Oh. Wait, so what, is this in the 60s at this point? Early 60s. Oh, okay. Yeah, like a dance variety show kind of thing very 60s yeah we're going much farther back already than i would have expected 
All right. On the surface of just hearing this song. Yeah, you thought we were just talking 80s new wave. Yeah. So then she started doing choreography for multiple TV shows and movies, and she ended up getting linked up with the monkeys. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. And they made... Those monkeys. Exactly. But they made a wildly psychedelic 1968 film called Head. I've heard of this. Uh, I've never watched Mm -hmm. any of it, but I've heard it talked about on interviews here and there. Yeah, it looks like it's pretty cool. Looks like it'd be worth watching uh, with some recreational substances, maybe. (laughs) She choreographed the film, but she also appeared in the film and sang a duet with Davy Jones from the Monkees. Very cool. Okay. Therefore, plenty of people have speculated that Mickey, the song, is about Mickey Dolan's from the monkeys mm. which is not true okay <laughs> you had me there for for one second right meanwhile she was dabbling in singing uh you know already starting to be a, a renaissance woman she actually recorded a single for a&m records in 1966 huh. the song was called i'm 28 and it's getting late Wait, what year is this? 66. Pretty typical mid 60s fair. Of the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's a song on the other side called Breakaway, which is kind of a jam. Oh, okay. It was the B-side on this single for AM Records. I'm going to play this. Digging it so far. Kind of got some like stacks swing to it. Yeah, I like this. Sultry. It inspired avant garde visual artist Bruce Connor, who has worked with everyone from Brian Eno to Dennis Hopper and was a later a part of the West Coast hardcore punk movement to direct a film to accompany the song. The film was black and white and featured Basil doing an interpretive dance in the nude. <laughs> okay. This is 1966. This is pretty avant-garde for the time. Here we go. Uh, There's actually a really interesting short documentary about it on the Museum of Contemporary Arts YouTube channel. So then she started kind of getting into his circle of people. Where is she living at this time? Is she in L.A.? Yeah, because I think Shindig was in L.A. with the ABC show was filmed there. And that's where the monkeys were all hanging out. Yeah, that's what I figured. So she got into Bruce Connors' crew and... She met Dennis Hopper, and this is when she wanted to focus a little bit more on acting, and she ended up appearing in his film, The Last Movie, which is famously a disaster, but also worth watching. It's got some crazy stuff in it. And then she was also an Easy Rider. Oh, really? With Dennis Hopper. No shit. Uh, So Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson, and then after that, she appeared in Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson. Damn. All right, girl. But she decided, Tony decided, that dancing was still her true calling. So in the meantime, she co-founded a pioneering dance troupe called The Lockers, which was 
quite groundbreaking because it featured primarily black men, with the exception of Tony. Oh, I like this. Okay. And they performed on numerous television programs, including Soul Train and The Tonight Show. They also opened shows for artists like Frank Sinatra and Funkadelic. And they featured several future breakdancing and b-boy legends, including Don Campbellock Campbell, who's largely credited as the creator of the dance style locking, as in popping and locking. Damn. Okay. Yeah. So Tony was on the ground floor. Tony, ahead of her time. Uh, she has a lot of admirers in the hip hop community, as I read. No shit. Again, would not have expected any of this. <laughs> I like it. I know, right? Yeah, it's very cool. So the lockers actually would recommend folks at home check out clips of them on YouTube. They're amazing. Revolutionary for the time. It's amazing to see six black dudes and then Tony Basil all doing choreographed dance together on TV in the early 70s. It's awesome. Yeah, you should watch it. I got I got to play a little bit of this. I'm, I'm pulling it up. Oh, yeah, I'm digging this. Wait, so I take it she's the only white girl here on the stage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's her. Hot damn. That's Tony. So obviously, the lockers got famous, and that landed her more choreography work. And she was the choreographer for George Lucas's 1973 film, American Graffiti. Oh, very cool. As well as stage shows for Tina Turner, David Bowie, and Bette Midler. Damn. And she continued this work throughout the 70s and early 80s. And unbeknownst to me, before this, she choreographed one of the most iconic music videos of all time. She also directed it for Talking Heads Once in a Lifetime. Wow. That was all Tony Basil. Like, oh shit. David Byrne crawling around with all the 3D effects and the white background. This girl's revolutionary. That's all Tony. Yeah. Epic, right? Meanwhile, in the late 70s, Tony started singing again. <laughs> of course. Why not? Right? She's, She's like a true artist. Can't stay still. I like it. Oh, I know. It's awesome. Uh, in 1976, during Saturday Night Live's inaugural season, Tony was asked to be the musical guest. Whoa. And she performed Wham Rebop Boom Bam, <laughs> a jazz standard, during the show. Which I think it was a Benny Goodman song. Sure. Um, I mean, she's very cool. Now, wait, was she a household name? Would people have known her? Obviously, they would know of some of her work, but like... Yeah, I think people might have recognized her face but maybe not known her name because she was popping up places. Yeah, and SNL was such an nascent stage that, like, it's not like SNL nowadays. Right. She did appear on the show more after this. Oh. But this performance got the attention of Warner Brothers Records, who offered her a recording deal, which I read a couple times in my research. That's how the story went. Which brings me to think, can you imagine now somebody unsigned playing on SNL to begin with, and then they get a record deal? <laughs> Well, I'm sure it would help. If you came to SNL unsigned, I'm sure, after the fact, you'd probably get a couple phone calls. I mean, these days, it's, like, rare that an artist on an indie label is on SNL. It's, like, yeah, not an easy thing to do. Different times. But I would have to assume that some of the folks on SNL were in her network of many friends and collaborators. Sure. Because she'd already ingrained herself in the general entertainment industry with her many talents. But she later appeared on SNL again with the Lockers. Oh, cool. And then they invited her to perform solo a couple more times. So she sort of became like a friend of the show for a while, like a Steve Martin or a Paul Simon. Uh, a, a good pantheon to be a part of. Absolutely. She never wore a turkey outfit, though, to my knowledge. <laughs> she seemed like she would. Oh, I'm I'm sure if if there were something artistic to be gleaned from it, she would wear a turkey outfit. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Hey, wait, I'm going to get another a quick refill myself. One. 10 seconds. 
I've returned. I'm wondering if you have something from our lovely beer sponsor, Sierra Nevada. You know, I don't because, unfortunately, I did not pick up any before coming to the island here, which is um, unfortunate because I'm in a very lovely setting. And I did get an email from our fine sponsors at Sierra Nevada saying that they are doing a contest currently where if you take a picture of their can in a nice outdoor setting, you could win some prizes. and. Uh, I feel like I would have won because I'm in a great, beautiful setting right now. You can still participate and be be one with people who are outdoorsy and love beer, which is, that describes me. Tony finally has a record deal with Warner Brothers. So it's time to make her first record. So she goes into the studio and she records the record Word of Mouth, which is released in 1981. It's a total new wave, super trendy for the time. In fact, it's so new wave that she was dating Gerald Casal, the basis for Devo at the time. Oh. Another new wave act that uh, put an emphasis on art. Oddly, Tony covered three Devo songs on the album. And what's even more odd is that Devo was her backing band on said Devo covers. Mm, okay. Keeping it, uh, keeping it Which close. Which is really weird. Yeah, it's like, hey, uh, we're just going to take Mark Mothersbaugh out of these songs and Tony, you can <laughs> sing them, put them on your record. Was Devo <laughs> on Warner Brothers? That I don't know, actually. I'm not sure if they were on the label, but I think it was just something that transpired from her dating Gerald Cassell. It was just all very incestuous. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But Tony also notably covered another song on this album. UK glam power pop band Racy. Have you heard of this band? R-A-C-E-Y? It sounds familiar, but maybe... So they had a few minor hits in the 70s, but they had another song that was not a hit at all. That was called Kitty. Okay. And this song was written by Mike Chapman, who later wrote or produced songs for Blondie, The Knack, Exile, and tons of other bands. Let's take a listen to Kitty. Hmm. <laughs> it already sounds a lot like uh, another song I know. <laughs> yeah, what song that is might that? might be Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tony heard this song. <laughs> oh my god. And... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of parallels here. I, I, I mean, a lot. It's the exact same song. Right. Okay. Interesting. So Tony adapted the song and turned the song into the subject at hand, Mickey. Well, at least I think that's how it went down. It's. But she recorded Kitty on this first album, or did did she record Mickey on this first? She album recorded Mickey. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Okay, she okay. covered. She covered Kitty on this album as Mickey. Um, I've read a lot of different stories of how this happened. This seems to be a trend on all my episodes. Never never a clear path to what actually happened. But I read a few times that Warner Brothers signed her to put out the record after seeing her on SNL. But then I also read that no label was interested in releasing Mickey. So she had to score a deal after the video was already done, which doesn't make any sense. Hmm. So I've read, like, I, I've read that um, she had to, like, shop around the single. So I don't know oh, if interesting. she signed with Warner Brothers, made the record, they didn't like it, had to move on, and then Chrysalis Records heard Mickey and put it out. Or if they just assisted with the single, I really don't know. I couldn't figure it out. I tried to research it for a while. Seems there are some unreliable narrators in this tale. So if any listeners know what actually happened, please submit to the mailbag. <laughs> Let us know. Uh, 
how Tony's record deal actually worked. Is Tony still alive? She is. Well, if any of our listeners know Tony, then let's just let's just go right to the source. Yeah, we could just have her on the mailbag for the next episode. Ask her ourselves. <laughs> that would be that would be a get. Well, in the song Mickey, Tony's version, she's clearly switched the genders from Kitty, where it was a man singing to a woman. Uh, it really sounds like when I listened to it, Kitty sounded like a song about a dude pestering a woman. <laughs> uh, and then Mickey, I've always thought that it was like a woman who's into this guy and she's yeah. kind of in disbelief that he's not reciprocating. Yeah. Oh, she's yeah. like, dude, what's up? Wow. What, what an outside your window? What's going on? Interesting profile in the power dynamic between men and women. Look at us going, going deep in psychology over here, which knowing the, uh, you know, the radical figure that Tony Basil was could have been intentional mm. i would not be surprised yeah um, she's definitely playing around with stereotypes in the song and objectification kind of turning the lens back on the boys which i love it's a good point i never really thought about that way but you're right well and also now that we know that the song was flipped that the genders were flipped um it kind of just changes the dynamic of the song especially i think in that era 100 percent yeah. So another aspect of the adaptation is that Tony obviously reached back into her already deep history in the performing arts to her cheerleading days, and she added the cheer squad chant that we all know and love. The Hey Mickey, you're Which so fine. Such a good part. It is. So this journalist, music journalist who I've followed for a while, Tom Braham, he writes for Stereo Gum. Uh, he wrote a retrospective piece on the song, and he mentions in the piece that Tony Basil somehow did not get a songwriting credit for adapting the song. Mm. But she absolutely should have, because the part she added is a huge part of what it made it, made it a hit. I mean, she changed the song. Sure. What, did you know the story about how it all came about? Because, I mean, perhaps she asked Racy, and they... Uh, there's got to be some legal stuff here. That oh, I'm sure there in, is. In the back end. Because I know from some of my past country music days that when artists wanted to change lyrics, like minor little things, either they weren't allowed by the songwriter or mm-hmm. they were allowed, but they weren't allowed any sort of writing credit change. So there's a precedent, but that makes sense. I mean, it's like the artist is like, Hey, you, cause you have to ask permission. You don't normally have to ask permission to cover a song no. as long as you don't change the song too much, which is, right. you know, up to the uh, eye of the beholder. Uh, that's why there's so many court cases about these things. But if you change the words or change the melody or change the song enough, you have to get permission. And most of the time I would say, they just say, okay, you have permission and you got to pay us like you normally would. Or we come up with our own rate. That's not the normal statutory rate. And then I can't see any time in that situation where they'd say, you want a writing credit too? Exactly. <laughs> so that makes right. sense. But I think that this is a case where it's kind of a shame that she didn't get a writing credit because she added the part that made arguably made the song famous. I mean, it wasn't a hit the first time. Well, I was going to say it. <laughs> I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about Racy's Kitty anytime soon. So. <laughs> so I'd have to agree with you on this one. It may also be due to the fact that her record company thought that the cheer chant was a terrible idea. <laughs> Oh, well, her record company was wrong. Yes. She refused to change it, being Tony, the boss she is. And she was correct all along. Yeah. And and, and look at it now. Does Warner still exist? Right. <clears throat> <laughs> the beat is probably the other most recognizable part of the song, I would say. Which just is credit to Racy. Yes. Uh, the publishing would be. 
Although my favorite part is, is the synthesizers, personally. But the beat is obviously unmistakable. You know what it's going to be. True. Uh, with the stomping and clapping. Though, it was directly inspired by a song that was produced by our friend and Kitty songwriter, Mike Chapman, The Knacks, My Sharon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Tony said about the beat that you actually hear in the song. The actual beat you hear is feet stomping on a wood floor by three of the Dorsey High cheerleaders while clapping along, then multiplied many times in the <laughs> studio and mixed in with a drum. So that's real cheerleaders in that song. Oh, I love that. I'd say perhaps the biggest reason this song was a hit, however, was the music video. I vaguely remember. I need to watch it again, which I assume we will. I can only find a little bit about the song's success before the video. I guess a radio station in LA called Kick, K-I-Q-Q, was playing an import copy that gained some traction. Interesting. But it wasn't until the video came out that the song really dominate the airwaves. Not only is it an unmistakable, groundbreaking video, and of course it was because it's Tony freaking Basil, <laughs> it just happened to hit when a little channel called Music television had just started mm. taking over the living rooms of teenagers all over the United States. I actually, I never really thought about this, but uh, there were obviously music videos prior to MTV. But where would one watch them? Well, yeah, because there was like the Queen music video. There's that Black Sabbath video, um, which maybe it was more of a, a European model. Well, I know that Black Sabbath video played on ABC on on TV, which probably scared the shit out of people. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen music videos from that time period, but it certainly was not something that every hit song would do by any means until MTV came along. Right. And then you could buy music videos on VHS, just the video. That's funny. And I never really thought about that. It's funny that you brought that up because, like, why would you, where would you watch videos before MTV? Because the story of how the video happened is pretty amazing. So Tony says that she never banks on anything being a hit, but she does say she doesn't think the song would have reached anywhere near the status it did without the support of MTV. So she supported my hypothesis. The music video was probably the biggest piece here. Sure. This was one of the first songs that benefited from its MTV airplay being the first domino that fell. Mm. Like a lot of early MTV hits were established artists already. Like people are like, Oh, I want to tune in. I want to see, Prince and David Bowie, yeah, you know, of course, um, or they were for songs that had already been popular on the radio. Sure. People want to hear songs. They know this was one of their first flexes as a tastemaker. Like we're the first ones here. We're playing this video, which worked out well for them for a long time. Yeah. Something incredible here that I didn't want to spoil when I was talking about the production of the song is that Tony had the idea for the video before she'd even selected a song for it. Oh, interesting. Okay. So she picked Kitty for the video. There we go. Being the autor that she is. So she had an idea for a video, heard Kitty, and was like, perfect for this video. Mm-hmm. However, the gender roles need to be switched. Yeah. Maybe I need to start a music career so that I can make that happen. Yeah. And I need to put a cheerleader chant over top of the song. <laughs> well, of course. She's a true cheerleader at heart. She She's going to bring that into anything she did. Yes. So she was looking for a song that could fit the idea of the video. And as we could tell along, Tony's more of a visual artist than a musical artist. Yeah. Do we have any idea how she heard Kitty for the first time? 
I couldn't find that. Okay. I have no idea. I mean, she was in with all these like underground new wave folks and sure, they're hearing they're hearing stuff. The dude who wrote Kitty was oh, producing right. a bunch yeah. of new wave records, so I don't know if that's how it came to be, or maybe she just liked Racy and heard it on a record. I mean, it's like a deep cut on one of their albums. Which like that's also the kind of the mystique of a curator, right? Like she found this song true. and like yeah. unearthed it and put it on her record and now it's a song we all love. Like that's talent in itself, I think. I mean that's what built a lot of producers. So yeah. Right. Absolutely. So what's also incredible about this is that she made the video before MTV even existed because she recorded the song and made the video in 1981. And so she said she must have, there must've been a, some sort of outlet. Well, some sort of distribution channel. MTV debuted later that year. Okay. So it's like, she already had this video and now there's suddenly a channel that only plays music videos. <laughs> so if only we can get this video to that channel. And somehow it happened, likely through her record label. Somebody at MTV saw it and said, this rules. Teenagers are going to love it. Let's put it on. And the rest was history. Fuck yeah. So let's watch the music video for Tony Basil's Mickey. Where were these cheerleaders from, do you know? I'll tell you exactly where these cheerleaders are oh. from. Interesting. <laughs> so... Her cheerleading uniform is actually a redesigned version of the one she wore at Las Vegas High School. Oh, that's cool. And the other dancers are a championship cheerleading squad from Carson High in Los Angeles. Uh, Uh, Before this, Basil was working on an art project where she was shooting videos of cheerleaders. And she met this cheer squad in the process. And so she invited them to be in the video, which is super cool. Um, What's wild is that it's all teenage cheerleaders in the video. And the video is being played for mostly cheerleaders on MTV. Yet Tony is 38 in this music video. Damn. Yeah. Pretty cool. She makes a really good point. Uh, Tony in an interview talked about how up until this point on TV and in movies, cheerleaders were kind of just like an afterthought. And they were just like, oh, we're cheering on the team and whatever. But she knew that it was actually a dance art form, which it is. I mean... Sure. Yeah. You watch those cheerleading competitions in ESPN too. Like that shit's insane. I'm in the I'm in the breakdown now. Where we're seeing like the just a cheer team doing their thing. Oh yeah. Which like super cool. She just put some regular people in this. Super cool. Um. But yeah, she was saying that like this was a chance for her to show the world that cheerleading is a distinctly American art form and that it's something special. Fuck yeah. It's a very captivating video. It is absolutely. It still is. I mean, I totally get how if this was playing. Once every hour in your living room, you'd be like, yeah, this, this rips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's so quirky. There was that one part where she's so close to the camera. It's, it's not a fisheye lens, but it almost could be that it's so like 80s MTV. Mm-hmm. And then she's in the heart. Yeah. I mean, she also totally looks like somebody who would be on SNL. Yeah, she does. Like great facial expressions. I read a little bit more about the making of the video. Uh, some interviews with Tony. She said the video took three days to rehearse and they shot that in two other music videos in the same day. Wait, she did? And the Mickey video is somewhat autobiographical of her high school days when she was head cheerleader at Las Vegas High. And she still has the outfit from this video today. I love that. And she said every so often she'll dry the sweater on just for fun. (laughs) And she always thinks, 
It's so hot. I can't believe I danced in that under those lights on stage. Fuck yeah. That, <laughs> that should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're missing out. Uh, this video um, has been a part of uh, an exhibit on the yeah. Rock and Roll, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They may have had it there, the sweater, but they had some props, and they also played the video on That's the screen. Cool. Okay. Because, um, again, it was very groundbreaking. I need to address what may be an elephant in the room to some listeners about the song Mickey. But yeah, who the fuck is Mickey? That, I can't tell you. Oh, there's multiple elephants. Right. I guess that is an elephant. But there may be some (laughs) listeners who have heard a theory about this song that I need to address. Okay. I was not aware of this whatsoever before this episode. And in fact, I picked this song specifically as an antithesis to last episode's subject matter. I wanted something so like quirky family friendly yeah that it was going to be the opposite of the bloodhound gang <laughs> right which involved uh feces and urination right yeah are we going that direction here and then i started researching this and like within <laughs> five minutes found a few things that made me say they made me touch my face <laughs> and say all right not again let's go apparently let's go there are a lot of people who think that mickey by tony basil is about anal sex. What? <laughs> You've never heard of this? <laughs> no! So many people think this, that there are multiple articles in respectable publications addressing that. So, Mickey is, like, a metaphor? Right. Supposedly this has been a theory since the 80s, and it still runs rampant, because there are recent articles about this. And it mostly surrounds these lyrics. So come on and give it to me any way you can. Any way you want to do it, I'll take it like a man. (laughs) In fact, when the song first came out, famed pop music critic Robert Criscow, do you know who that is? I don't, no. He's like the granddaddy of pop music critics. He still has a column for Vice, actually. Yeah, cool. He said, Basil was the only woman ever to offer to take it up the ass on Top 40 Radio. (laughs) Which is pretty crass, honestly. Can we verify that? Uh, yeah, right, exactly. But also, like, come on, dude, that's how you're gonna write about this song. So this must have been, like, very public knowledge, because it's one thing nowadays to put a song out and you get some, like, conspiracy traction on Twitter or Reddit or something, but, like, this must have been very well populated. So out of all the literature you can find about this song's potential secret meaning about sodomy, there's a 2012 Vulture article by journalist Adrian Day in which she actually tracked down Tony Basil and straight up asked her about it. <laughs> and funny enough, Tony brings it up first in the interview. I think she had a feeling this is where this is going. And I find it most respectful to Ms. Basil to read her statement directly to set the record straight for everyone. And Tony says, no, that's ridiculous. Everyone reads shit into everything. <laughs> it's not about anything dirty. You change the name from boy to girl, i.e. from Kitty to Mickey, and they read anything they want into it. When it's a guy singing about a girl, it's a sweet line. When a girl sings it, it must mean butt-fucking. <laughs> this is how the wrong foot gets cut off when the doc wheels you into the ER. And then people think it's Mickey Dolan's, and then it's butt-fucking. Wow. I like her. What a line. <laughs> uh, she's not wrong. And of course, she's alluding 
to that fact that people thought it was about Mickey Dolenz from the Monkees, which it's also not. But we don't know who it's about. We don't. I think she just came up with a name that sounded like Kitty that was a man. There has to be something there, because otherwise, why on the surface would you jump to that conclusion? Just because of that one line. But that's still a stretch to me. It's that lyric. Yeah. But then you you listen to that line, you convince yourself, and you listen to the rest of the song. And you're the like, video doesn't leave any credence to that. I don't know. Hey, I n- it never crossed my mind once, and I've heard this song that's so many you times. An upstanding gentleman. I think it's this sick bastard, Robert Criscal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a gentleman who didn't think this song was about butt fucking, and I don't listen to Bloodhound Gang. Well, that that makes one, one of, of us. us. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to talk about the charts. It's time to talk about how popular this song really got. And I would love for you to take a guess as to where this ended up on the U.S. charts. I'm not going to guess very high. Because, sure, video success is one thing, but I could see this song becoming much more popular down the line. So I'm going to go high teens. Well, I'm going to go number fucking one, because that's what it hit. Son of a bitch. (laughs) Uh, It was probably number one for like seven weeks, too, wasn't it? (laughs) Uh, I believe it was number one for more than a week. Uh, It was number two on the UK charts. It's also number one in Canada, number one in Australia. Uh, The single sold more than two million copies in the US alone. Uh, Again, I love that stereo gum piece by Tom Braham. According to Tom. Mickey is the second time an American woman achieved a number one hit song in the U.S. by covering a song from the late 70s minor bubblegum glam rock band and flipping the genders around. Oh, okay. Hold up. <laughs> Let me see if I can get this. Uh, what decade? It's kind of a similar character, I would say. Like, like the singer is has some similarities with okay. uh, My immediate thought went to either Tiffany or Cher. Am I right on either of those? <laughs> You're okay. not. Uh, it's it's Joan Jett. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts pulled it off with "I Love Rock and Roll," yeah, which was originally recorded and released by the band The Arrows, a group of British glam dudes in the seventies. Oh, fun fact! I like that. Yeah, I loved that. Yeah. I that was great. Well, actually, I want to mention something that I didn't write down, but I can't be alone. When I was a kid. And I heard this song, and I, I'm sure I saw the video a few times. I always thought this song was about Mickey Mouse. <laughs> You're definitely not alone there. I didn't think that, but I'm sure people did. I like thought it had something to do with Mickey Mouse Club, because Mickey Mouse Club was big at the time. True. They were doing choreographed stuff. I don't know. I just always assumed the song was about Mickey Mouse. I don't think I thought that anymore, but for a long time, I definitely did. I could also see like the Disney Channel or, or you know commercials from Disney playing the song maybe and referencing, you know, having Mickey Mouse in in there. Uh little did they know it was about anal sex. <laughs> Wasn't every Disney thing about some sort of sexual in you and that is true, actually. I'm actually surprised that Disney hasn't sued her or sued the copyright holders of the song because it's got Mickey in it. They sue everybody for everything. Well, they they can't claim Mickey. I'm sure they've tried to copyright it. I'm sure they, they cannot have. claim the name. They've tried Mickey. to copyright everything. She doesn't say Mickey Mouse. They're trying to copyright Thor and Loki, not the Marvel characters, 
the gods, the Scandinavian gods. And all the Scandinavians are like, yo, you can't, you can't just come after us for stuff that we've been <laughs> worshiping for thousands of years. <laughs> it's a real thing. <laughs> I do not know that. All right. All right. You may be right then. The album Word of Mouth is nominated for a Grammy. The music video was nominated for one of the first MTV Video Music Awards. Year one of MTV, they had the, the, the video awards? Yeah, 1982. Hmm. I'm sure it's a shit show. I'm sure it's great. The Mickey Music Video has also appeared in exhibits at the New York Museum of Modern Art, which I know is one of your favorites, mm-hmm. and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There you go. Uh, this song has also been covered, as you would imagine, by a number of aspiring pop acts and also jokingly by a couple of rock bands. None of those are really notable enough to share, to be honest. Okay. The most famous artist who covered this, I believe, is Olivia Newton-John. Again, her version oh. is really nothing to write home about. However, Mickey is sampled in a number of other songs by famous artists. The most popular song is definitely Tricky by Run DMC, yeah. which also samples My Sharon. It does. Bringing it full circle. Leave it to Run DMC. Yeah, I like that. It's been sampled by artists all over the stylistic map, from Florida to Boards of Canada, which I believe that's probably the only time anyone's ever said those two names in the same phrase. Fair, but they are, you know, geographical destinations. So. They are, that's true. <laughs> we, we have from, from north to south right there. Uh, it's also been sampled by Limp Biscuit, Salt and Peppa, Iggy Azalea, Yellow Wolf, No Use for a Name, Girl Talk, Put Internet, and many, many more. Damn. I do want to play a song that was inspired by Mickey. And I think it's one that you've been patiently waiting for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As I am every episode. Sounds like a favorite of yours. I I just, I had a, a, a little bit of time there where I was so into Weird Al. That's great, because Weird Al rules. Yeah. Here is Ricky by Weird Al, which is hilarious because he turned Mickey into a song about Ricky Ricardo from I Love Lucy. Love it. And the whole video is basically a recreation of I Love Lucy with Weird Al and his band singing the song. It's awesome. I feel like this is a time where I also need to mention that there's a great podcast about Desi Arnaz. Mm. It might be Planet Money one. It's, uh, it's so good. It's about the fact that Desi Arnaz like, revolutionized the Hollywood model. And he like flipped the switch on how to like become a superstar and a moneymaker in Hollywood. And this like Cuban hmm. immigrant like changed the game for everyone. That's incredible. Yeah, it is Planet Money. Yeah, Planet Money: How Desi Invented Television. It's the episode from January twenty second, two thousand twenty one. Uh, I recommend all the listeners check it out. Check it out. Go check out our friends at Planet Money, who we don't know. Yeah, but if Planet Money wants to then talk about our podcast, we'll probably get a lot more listeners. So you see what I'm trying to do here. <laughs> You know, uh, thanks for enjoying this episode about uh, the economics of Bolivia. <laughs> um, we want to let you know about an episode that discusses whether or not Tony Basil's Mickey is about buttfucking. Uh, it, it rolls right off the tongue. I'm about to send you another version of this song that is highly inspired that you will be thrilled about. Oh, okay. Oh, here we go. We finally get a kid's corner. Here is our first installment of the You Wanted a Hit Kids Corner. So do they change the lyrics to be a little less kid-friendly, if you know what I mean? Actually, I wonder if they... Do they say... Those little rascals, they're pulling the wool over our eyes. Making lots of money doing it. Well, there is a kid spot version of Mickey. I'm so happy we finally have a kid's corner. 
Been waiting for this day. We've been hoping to have a segment where we feature the Kids Bop version of the song. And the whole idea was that it's who tune in the podcast. We have a little something for the kids later in the episode. I want to talk a little bit about what's unlikely about this song. Because you knew right away, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. we have to cover this. What do you think makes this song an unlikely hit? I feel like there are two very conflicting parts of this song. One feels like so old school 50s vibes, which just doesn't fit for the 80s. And then there is like, obviously like an 80s part of the song that is very like of the time. Mm-hmm. It just it feels like a, a local, like, it feels like a cheer song. It feels like a rah, rah, rah song. It doesn't feel like a song that would go number one for two weeks in the U.S. It doesn't seem like that. Like enough people were like, yup. People of all ages love this song. Um, it's clearly a novelty song. Yeah, it's a novelty song. And I feel like this is a song nowadays would like take off on TikTok and it would kind of blossom from there. But coming from mm-hmm. traditional channels, I just don't see it landing as much as it Which did. It was, now I know that it wasn't a traditional channel. It was kind of like the TikTok equivalent. That's true. Right? That's a good point. You know, was was mtv and its infancy do you know some of the other songs that were bouncing around number one at the time so mickey was number one number two was gloria by laura brannigan three was Maneater by hall and oates followed by truly by lionel okay. richie i actually believe mickey knocked truly off the number one spot the girl's mind michael jackson and paul mccartney stepping out mm-hmm. joe jackson great song dirty laundry okay. by don henley sexual healing by marvin gay which is probably the best song on this list Rock This Town by the Stray Cats, and then Muscles by Diana Ross. Pretty horny top 10. (laughs) That's very true. Half of them are like kind of kitschy songs, kind of novelty-esque in a way. Mm -hmm. Although most of them are huge stars, like all except for Laura Branigan. These are all massive acts. But still, I guess of the time, the song did fit well into the... But I mean, now I know clearly this is an unlikely hit because of the journey that it took to get to number one i mean this is it's pretty incredible that it was made to accompany a visual of just some song she picked as a you know a deep cut on some weird 70s uk record wild journey i do wonder if someone at the label that was working with Tony knew that she was such a visual artist and i'm sure at the time that mtv was getting started or before it got started i'm sure that a lot of record execs had input or probably left to start help start MTV, and we're probably putting the clarion call out to all the labels saying like, start making videos. Right. Any video we get in the forefront, we're gonna start popping them up. Who's got the best? And ones? I'm sure some low level A and R guy was like, "Yo, yeah. you're a visual artist. We're putting money behind you. Let's make a video before it's even a thing." That does make sense. Her next two videos got played on MTV as well. So she, all three that she made in that day, got played on MTV. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she made three. Though the other songs weren't weren't as much hits on the radio. Part, I think part of this amazing journey of the song is she was in her late 30s when she recorded her debut album. Yeah. Ended up being a smash hit on a channel created for and marketed to teenagers nearly exclusively. Yeah. And the fact that all this lined up and worked out is, is a pretty tremendous story. And I think probably a gamble for everybody involved, even though I don't think she gave a shit whether or not it was successful. She sounds like that kind of person. She had enough. She had enough success going on. She just wanted to make her art. But I will say, as someone who just turned 34 mm-hmm. yesterday and is getting closer oh, and closer. Right. Happy birthday. Thank you. That as I get closer and closer to my, my late 30s, I am inspired by Tony, knowing that maybe in four years I could come out with a massive pop song. Uh, I, think you, I think you could. You may want to uh, get started on your career in choreography and acting beforehand. 
Um, we can work on that. Got some time. Well, different time. A different time. I'm getting a, a podcast career yep. off the ground first because that is much more uh, yeah, 2020. I think, right. I think we're so, on to something. This this was the whole point yeah. of the podcast so that you can have your own hit eventually. Mm-hmm. We're studying. Yes, exactly. I love yeah. this. I think it summarizes the song so well. We're back to my man, Tom, at Stereo Gum. Again, I don't know him. I just like his writing. But he really put it best about Mickey in that article on what's great about this song. He said, in the history of pop music, the following things have only, almost always been forces for good. Energy, excitement, maddening clapping game chants, desperately horny vocals, cheap and trebly farfisa organ sounds, gigantic stomping stop-start quasi-tribal drums, possibly not intentional sexual innuendo. Mickey has all those things, and it kicks ass. <laughs> Boom. Mic drop. Right? He's not No wrong. better summary. <laughs> I think we should talk about where Tony is now, or rather, where Tony went after Mickey. She had a couple hits in the lower ranks of the Hot 100 through the years, but nothing like the success of Mickey. I mentioned a couple of her songs she played on MTV. In fact, Tony did not play even one Tordator concert around the song. Whoa. She only used the success of the video and radio to sell all those records, which is amazing. Why didn't she tour? I don't even think it crossed her mind. Well, I'm sure it crossed the label. Oh, I'm sure it did. But I think she was just (laughs) such an artist. She was like, no, that part's done. I'm on to my next thing. I love that. Yeah, she's very much more of like a visual performance artist. You know, like absolutely. Uh, I would have done this performance once in a museum had I had the opportunity. The opportunity was to just make a video and put it on MTV. So I did it, and now I'm on mm-hmm. the next. So what? What did she do after? She kind of did what she always did. Uh, she made more art and made more friends in high places. She directed art films that were shown in museums and theaters around the world. She was nominated for multiple Emmys and multiple awards in choreography and dance, including a few accolades for her contributions in the hip-hop dance art form. I actually read a couple times that Basil coined the term street dance, which is kind of the blanket term that refers to the many dance styles formed in American cities like breaking, locking, popping. Well, I mean, clearly she was ahead of the curve there. Most of her work now is in choreography for film, and she has choreographed the films That Thing You Do, My Best Friend's Wedding, and both Legally Blonde films. Her most recent major film that she choreographed was Quentin Tarantino's 2019 film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Damn! Tony's still working. She's also a judge on So You Think You Can Dance. Oh, no shit. Uh, One last thing about Tony. Renaissance woman, Jane of all trades, as you said. She's been incredibly influential in American culture, so much more than I thought. Mm -hmm. I think the world's culture. Uh, yeah. She also sues everyone. (laughs) Uh-oh. specifically over the usage of this song. Maybe she didn't get that writing credit, so she's bitter. I don't really know. Yeah, how much money did Racy make off, off this song? Uh, well, they didn't write it. That that producer wrote it, that New Wave did. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he, I'm sure, has done quite well. Tony claims that Mickey, quote, has been exploited and unlawfully licensed throughout the world over the last three decades. And I was thinking, so nobody has properly licensed the song? Like, it's been all these things, and no one has done their homework and done the paperwork. Made me scratch my head a little. Yeah. I assume that Warner Brothers probably signed a really good deal with uh, Tony, and she didn't make much money off this song. I believe what actually happened was that Tony doesn't own the rights to the song and thinks she does. 
She has sued yeah. everyone from Disney to Viacom to Forever 21 to South Park to RuPaul and many more. Oh, so we were just talking. We were just talking about how Disney didn't sue her. She sued Disney. She sued Disney and she also sued Viacom, who owns MTV. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, by the hand of feeds, Disney must have uh, made a commercial with Mickey or something that Warner Brothers and said writer made lots of money off of. According to an AV Club article titled Tony Basil of Mickey fame is suing basically everybody. <laughs> Basil's accusations center on a company called Razor and Tie. You're familiar with Razor and Tie, correct? Well, don't they own Kizbop? They do. So, so yeah. welcome back to kids. <laughs> Somehow through, you know, all the conglomeration of the labels, Razor and Ty now owns the rights to oh, Mickey. Okay. And, but she says that they've been illegally licensing the song without her permission for years. Yeah, well, they have been working her song without her permission because she has nothing to add to permissions. <laughs> so she would the have performance rights. the recording. Right. Oh, yes. It's her recording. It's her. Yeah. But. A lot of these things, I think, are using covers of it or characters are singing it. And, like, she can't really do anything about that. But I'm also sure that she signed away those rights. Tony claims they do not legally have the right to license the song out. A lot of these cases have been dismissed, as you would think, uh, which makes me guess that they do have the rights to license it. And also, she sued South Park, who used the song as a parody. It it was, uh, I think it was about Obama. And that's protected under U.S. copyright law. So, like, you can't. (laughs) You can't sue them for that. I'm sure it's not the first time that uh, Trey and Matt Stone have been licensed with a lawsuit. No, I'm sure it's not. I don't mean to end on um, maybe not the most flattering thing about Tony, but that is the story of Mickey by Tony Basil, which reached number one on the U.S. charts in 1982. Great journey. Great journey. I thoroughly enjoyed that one. The story did not disappoint. Um, Once I started reading about her career i was like oh this is gonna be gold this is great fascinating character not a lot of funny business just kind of cool shit no just straight ahead great story people probably don't know about it so i appreciate you bringing this uh i would think that this is one of the biggest earworms that's going to be stuck in people's heads after they listen to definitely it. i'm i'm be I mean, this is like one of the catchiest songs of all time i'm be going to bed with a clap in my head That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Good luck getting Mickey out of your head. Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review. But only if it's nice. Follow us on Twitter at YWAHpod and let us know what you think. Or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at ywahpod at gmail.com. We welcome any suggestions for songs for future episodes, so bring them on. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Beidler. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.